Inspired by conversations during the first season of The Strategist, The Strategist After Hours brings together Bush Institute experts to discuss hot topics and news of the day. In this second episode, we cover technology's expanding and often disruptive role in education, the job market, and our everyday lives. I'm Andrew Kaufman, and this is The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Institute. What happens when you cross the 43rd president, late night sketch comedy, and compelling conversation? The Strategist, a podcast born from the word strategery, which was coined by SNL and embraced by the George W. Bush administration. We highlight the American spirit of leadership and compassion through thought-provoking conversations. And we're reminded that the most effective leaders are the ones who laugh. We've assembled a panel of Bush Center experts to tackle a topic that continues to make headlines, which is technology and how it is changing our lives from education to job markets, job markets and the economy and more, starting with Ken Hirsch, the president and CEO of the Bush Center. Ken, thanks for joining us once again on The Strategist. I always love being here, Andrew. <laughs> oh, thank you. Colm Clark, our director in the at the Bush Institute SME Economic Growth Initiative. This is his first time on The Strategist. Colm, thanks for joining us. Great to be on The Strategist. And another first-timer, Ann Wicks, the Ann Kimball Johnson Director of Education Reform. Ann, thank you for joining us. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Ken, let's start with you. You wrote a piece recently for The Catalyst, the Bush Institute's thought journal, about the slow world and the fast world colliding. The slow world being government and policy, and the fast world being these innovative, disruptive, and technology-based companies that are out there. Um, Is the collision of these worlds, is that dangerous or is it a good thing? Well, whether it's a good thing or not a good thing, it's happening. And I think it's going to be the defining uh, force or dynamic or conflict, whatever, whatever word you want to use, it's going to be the defining, uh, element that, uh, will determine where the United States goes and where the world goes in the next 20 to 40 years. And, uh, it seems pretty obvious when you look at it, um, that, uh, and I quote uh, Prime Minister Trudeau from a couple years ago, where he said, things have never moved this fast. And again, they will never move this slowly. And the fast world favors speed and things are picking up speed. Uh, artificial intelligence, robotics, instant journalism, um, gene editing, cryptocurrencies. These are all disruptive um, and they're disrupting uh, econ- the economy. They're disrupting institutions. They're disrupting the way we live. Um, And then the slow world is trying to slow it down. And the slow world doesn't value speed as much as it values accuracy. We have three branches of government, the checks and balances system, parliamentary systems, which are coalition formings, are designed to be slow. Multi-party agreements are designed to be slow and deliberative. Something like a jury trial. It's designed to be slow so that you can actually get to the truth. Um, Even declaring war requires an act of Congress, which was meant to be deliberative. And so these are the element where slow had a positive connotation and all of these institutions were were designed to be more deliberative to be slower to be more careful i.e. good outcome speed and is is disruptive is now has a, po- a positive connotation right and, and things are getting faster and things are getting faster and so the the fast world wants to disrupt the slow world and the slow world's fighting back right in china and in russia there is no doubt who owns your data who owns the network 
And if they want to slow it down or use the speed to their advantage, they're doing it. They are applauding the size of Alibaba and Tencent and Baidu in China. And we are vilifying the size of Apple, Amazon and Facebook here. Okay, And most recently to have the secretary of the Treasury say that Amazon killed retail. Amazon is retail. <laughs> okay. right. I mean, that's like saying that the that that the trains killed transportation because they put <laughs> horses out of business. No, right, no, they right. are transportation. So I, it just to me is something that we need to get our hands around. We need to understand it, and most importantly, we need to come to terms with it. And so, Anne, how do in, in this world? So we have this world now. We 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 can't fight it. It's going to happen, and we have these different policy issues that. You have to wrap your brain around. What do you think are some of these the top policy issues that we really have to address to, to live in this world? Uh, that's a big question, Andrew. That's, that, <laughs> I that was thinking is why as we're Ken here. was we're talking gonna... about the like if there's ever been an example where Luddites have won, like Luddites never win, right? If we sort of know that as our truism, you sort of you have to figure out how to prepare people to get comfortable and understand risk, right? So I was just thinking about this through through an education lens. So how do you grapple with the complexities of speed and risk, which is what Ken was talking about. It's like risk and opportunity amplified through all the speed that's so different now than it would have been 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And I think that's why we care so much in education about whether kids can read and do math and solve problems because the only way you can grapple effectively with risk and opportunity is actually if you have a baseline of context and you can read and interpret information and, um, and use math to solve problems. Um, so policy opportunities, obviously I care a lot about the education policy and why we care about um, accountability. But when you think about sort of broadly, one of the things that's uniquely American is that, we're built on people understanding and seizing opportunity in many different ways, economically, politically, otherwise. And I think that is important. It's essential and distinctive. So when the Treasury Secretary is talking about retail and we're talking about the size of technology companies, you have to, we just have to maintain sort of a uniquely American clear-eyedness about opportunity and risk. And I think that's what makes this country so different than many. Are we at a risk of this causing a haves and have-nots society? Well, we're, we're, we're trending in that direction in general. Um, I think what we have seen with, in, with essentially the, the, what a lot of people call the third industrial revolution, the IT revolution, is that it's been accompanied by growing inequality and by a, a sort of a lower income or lower middle income um, population in, in America that hasn't seen very fast income growth, probably reflecting the fact that it's difficult for people to sort of tool up to skill up to deal with modern technology so uh, so that's been a, that's been a factor for sure one thing we've we've worked on a lot at the bush institute is um what's happening in terms of economic geography in america and clearly there is a heavily geographic component to, to what's happening in the economy essentially um uh, 25 or 30 big metro areas have been kind of pulling away from everybody else because they are the centers where all of the the technological revolution is taking place. Uh, so we're thinking a lot about uh, about kind of what, what happens with all the other places and also about uh, issues of, well, do uh, d- does the person who starts from a relatively disadvantaged background have a reasonable opportunity to kind of to 
make it in the big city where the action is, which of course we all think of like Silicon Valley, New York, but it's also Dallas and Austin and Charlotte and uh, Raleigh and Denver, places all over America, uh, which are facing some significant challenges in terms of uh, affordability. Hey, Colm, what's interesting is historically... Um, our economy was location based. We, you know that the the coastal cities were where all the action was because that's where trade was coming in and out of this country, and so there were big population centers. Immigrants came into port cities, and they intended to congregate there, aggregate there for um, for a generation. What's odd to me is it is it hasn't it always been the case where twenty or twenty five major metropolitan areas were where most of the action was, and people mig- but people migrated into those areas. So that's question one. Is is it is this time different or not? It's just different locales. The second thing is, it feels to me like technology is one of those things that removes the geographic constraint. You could be on the internet from the middle of some some remote area, but you couldn't. You know, once upon a time, you couldn't manage a fleet of of steamships from a remote area, an inland area. So, I mean, it it's why isn't technology liberating the necessity for people to be in specific areas, or maybe the fact that it's not, it just sort of shows something anthropologically that we we like to congregate. Uh, let's see. Great questions, Ken. I Thank think, you. I, I think on, That's why he's the CEO. I think on the... the <laughs> The, the, first que- the first question you ask is, hasn't it always been this way? There's been a few places that lead ch- change. I could not agree more that that has always been the reality. We also sometimes have had forces for catch up by other places. You know, other places can, they may not be early adopters, but they can ultimately essentially build, you know, me too companies before long, they're doing okay as well. So uh, that's probably going to be part of the pattern as it has been in the past. So yeah, I, I would agree on that. Uh, there is one thing that's a little bit new in the pattern, uh, and that is around uh, housing and real estate prices, because historically what has happened is when people start moving to where the action is, as you say, there was a point in time when it was Northeastern, Upper Midwest, later it became West Coast. When they start moving, essentially those places build enough new housing and enough new real estate such that the supply of space goes up as fast as the demand for space and the price remains roughly where it was before relative to people's income. Uh, Nowadays, we've experimented for about a generation with all kinds of new, essentially uh, heavy-handed land use regulation to a much greater degree than existed in earlier times in America when we had a relatively free market in land use. And the, uh, the result is that the hottest economies in some places are dramatically unaffordable and not building out enough, which has, which creates the remarkable outcome that, for example, the San Francisco Bay Area is losing people, not gaining them. Right. So, but isn't over a 50 year period, doesn't that balance itself out that, that people would say, you know, it's way too unaffordable here. I want to open my business in Omaha, Nebraska, because I think that's, it's so much more affordable and I can, I can have five times the, the, the quality of my life and absolutely workforce. I mean, does it, does it, does it even out or does it? No, does I think, I think out? it, I think it doesn't necessarily even out thinly across all of geography, but certainly you create new centers. And I would argue that's the, what you just said is the single most important reason that places like Dallas and Houston are booming as much as they are because they are where the people are going. Sure. Yeah. Now to bring it to education and one of the big things when you have, uh, in the perfect world, you would have a place like a San Francisco, or let's just call it California, because it's cost of living so high in, in the major metropolitan areas, where maybe incomes have kept up, but those um, the public goods like education 
um, teacher salaries haven't kept up. And so now, and so now, and fire, firemen and policemen. So now they're living, they can't afford to live in the communities that they work in. Yes. I think it's a huge problem. I'm not sure I don't have a solution for it, but if you create mini Monaco's, right. If San Francisco is where it's, it's, it's so expensive. The people who are living in that community, it's like a very unusual community because the people have such a high income and such a different style of living. And then there's like a ring of people that would support the work of that community that live outside it is not a very sustainable in the long term. I think you see that both in LA and San Francisco, where people have had to move so far out from the center and they're, it's untenable. They, commutes move, out, they and, move out of the capital to districts one through 13. <laughs> correct. Correct. It's a dystopian future yeah. we're heading towards. Clearly. And is there danger too in and losing some of these rural areas, like we still need those those regions, and there's communities there that are just getting ravaged by by this movement. What do we? How do we help those people? Well, so this is where maybe I don't sound like a very nice person, but I I think there's like what responsibility do we have to sustain communities that have lost an economic center or some like you know sort of that that I think has happened over and over over time all over the world it's not sort of a unique to now and i think the challenge is how this going back to this idea of seeing opportunity or risk if a business has gone away we've all seen that a plant closes something like that what's the community's responsibility to retrofit essentially like how do you how do you restart that, re-engage that, if that's being in that place is so critical to the experience you want, then how do you recreate that? That's, I don't- and that, that's one of the bigger issues. I think that it's not that, and you're not a nice person. Um, I think that we, <laughs> thank you, Ken. Um, I think that we've, we've, we've lost the ability to take a breath and say um, that disruption doesn't mean failure. Correct. Okay. Correct. And and we think disruption is failure, and we need to do everything we can to slow it down or stop it to fix the problem that just happened two days ago. I look at a region like um, North Carolina. North Carolina was a the furniture capital of the world, and te- textiles and furniture got completely disrupted thirty years ago. Completely disrupted by cheap labor in Asia. Okay, both those industries. And rather than crying to the federal government to protect furniture and textiles. North Carolina today is healthcare, biomedical research, financial services. It's a diversified economy. It's got the, some of the best universities in the world. It's got some of the best companies in the world. And now um, it's so much more stable. And so you can look at that 10-year period or 15-year period where there's massive disruption. And now I look at it and say, that region is set for 100 years. Now, a historian would look at that and say, okay, you know, 10 or 15 years, they were so highly concentrated that got, for a long time, they were concentrated if you had tobacco to it. Um, and then, then they had this disruption period and then they reinvented themselves for, it was a public and private move. Um, and now it's so much more healthy and able and more resilient. So, and that's not to so we don't sound like, you know, heartless capitalists. Right. There there's clearly human pain in a disruption. Correct. So that doesn't Correct. mean that doesn't exist and there's ways to think about that and as a, as like humans who care about each other. It's but the I macro think you're right. The micro. Well, yeah, but also it's like how do you help the um, help humans understand disruption in the way Ken was just describing yeah. it? I I mean I I 
think I'm very much agreeing with that with uh, what Ken and uh, Ann are saying. Uh, but um, any any kind of policy program to slow the disruption is equivalent to slowing progress. It's a bad idea, and it will finally fail. Right? Uh, finally, it has to be about adaptation. Part of adaptation is. Fundamentally, people moving around. Part of people moving around is creating new communities, new social capital in places. Um, but I think coming back to Ken asked an interesting second question, and I want to come back to that, which is: Has technology liberated us to go any place? And I, I, I would like to suggest we've had a couple really big surprises as the third industrial revolution has rolled forward over the last generation. The first surprise is that um, we absolutely weren't liberated to go anywhere. We don't have software coders making just as much money sitting in the rural North Dakota as uh, in um, Cupertino, California, or Seattle, or Austin. Uh, What we've actually found is that new technology has, if anything, um, uh, accentuated the economic advantages of having lots of smart, creative people together in a relatively dense, tight location, all um, exchanging ideas with each other. Uh, and that is really different from what people our age were, were being told in like high school and college about how the way the future was going to play out. So I think uh, it would be nuts to predict that that world's going to change. Um, and that's, that's been um, one big surprise. The, uh, the other surprise, I don't, I don't think perhaps it should surprise any of us who know history, but nonetheless, something of a surprise, uh, is that um, as technology has rolled forward, we, we all know all kinds of jobs have been destroyed. But look at the unemployment rate. More have been created. Uh, all kinds of new categories. I was just with a, uh, a friend the other day. I asked what his daughters who had recently grown up were doing. Both of them were doing jobs that didn't exist 10 years ago. I had to ask, what, what does that even mean? Uh, as he described these job descriptions, but they were doing great and they were making pretty good income. And it was, it was very interesting. Um, I think what we see, I hope they're not Instagram influencers. Please say no. They're not influencers, but they're definitely around social media. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, one of them's representing, I think, a, uh, like a hospital system as the social media person. Um, but what don't say you don't understand it because then that puts us as Luddites again. And, (laughs) and Anne said we're doomed. Yes. If you're a Luddite, good luck to you, my friend. No, no Luddism here. Don't worry about it. Um, but what, but, but it's been really interesting to, if you take the long view, right? I mean, if you go back, uh, to the year 1900 when 70% of the people were farmers and a whole lot of others were essentially in the business of producing shelter and clothing. And that essentially those three things, food, shelter and clothing dominated people's wallets. If you had said that we would go from 70% of the people farming to less than 2%, uh, people would have predicted mass unemployment, economic, chaos, right? We'd all be starving. We'd all be starving. What do we actually find? We all have, if anything, too much food around, and uh, we, produ- we produce mountains of excess corn and wheat and so forth. We're doing just fine on that front. And what has actually happened to people's wallets? Well, food, shelter, and clothing have actually, we produce all those things much more efficiently than we used to do. So now they consume less than 40%, I think probably closer to 30% of people's wallets. What has taken their place? All kinds of things that barely existed in the year 1900. Many of them did, did not exist at all. And all of those, in turn, created enormous numbers of jobs. I think a realistic prediction is that's what will happen in the future as well. So, and what does that mean then for what does education need to look like? Because it's, it's this world is getting it's taking over. Like we have AI coming, we have um, you know Bitcoin taking over on the currency front. What does education need to look like now to keep up with this world? I'm going to sound like a boring, broken record, but I think you have to just teach kids, make sure they can read, make sure they can write, make sure they can do math and have an ability to solve problems. And that sounds ridiculous, but so many of our kids are actually not on track to do that. So when you imagine 
we were, you, you, you can predict sort of reasonably what jobs are going to look like in about 10 years. It gets a little sketchier when you start looking out beyond that 20, 30 years, right? It's hard for us to say, oh, if you just go to coding camp, Andrew, I can guarantee you 60 years of really solid salary and employment the rest of your life, so what, right? If you go to coding camp, don't you just learn to write code that will go out of existence within 10 years? Yeah, which could be a great thing to know and learn. I think the difference is the expectation, like when I think about my son as he goes through school, that I want to make sure he understands he's always got to be learning, right? You're not just sort of vaccinated with all the knowledge that you have by age 22 and can go on into life. You have to expect, to Ken's point, things are going to constantly disrupt and change and you're likely going to have to figure out new skills, learn to adapt, understand opportunity. Like all that I think is... um, uh, that actually has to be the focus. We hear a lot of people are like, oh, if we just give iPads to kids and if we really understand STEM or STEAM, those aren't wrong, but they're not shiny object solutions that will magically help our kids be successful over time. Yeah, I think it's a mentality to be excited by change and not scared of it. And yes. if we educate kids that change is good, it's positive, um, and you can be a part of it, uh, and and tap into that um, that innate imagination and wonder, and rather than have it be fearful, have it be a, a source of 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 optimism um, that that excites people's minds and and triggers creativity and and that's when ingenuity happens and that's when invention happens and most importantly that's when adaptation happens. So even if somebody isn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. They're not scared by change. They say, okay, well, that, that maybe that didn't work out. How am I going to reinvent myself? You know, this is an opportunity. How cool is that? And, and rather than beaten, be beaten up by the idea of change, you have to be energized by it. And I think that starts at a very young age. And, and, with, and it's hard if your parents are feeling beaten up and out of it. You know, people our generation are feeling, oh, my God, we're being left behind so how can I how can I instill that with my kid and my kids? I think you make such an interesting point, Ken, about uh, reinvention because you know we sort of imagine that that's incredibly wrenching and difficult. But gosh, look around the five of us who are in the room. I mean, to, as far as I can tell, we've all totally reinvented ourselves and come up with new things to do and continued to come up with new paths in our in our in our in our professional lives and in other respects. And, and I think that that you know one of the things that President Bush has always. Um, uh, always fast to point out is that the ultimate compassionate outcome is creating a set of conditions where there's equality of opportunity, not necessarily equality of outcome. And, and if you create that quality of opportunity, now we're fortunate in this room because we've all been to good colleges and we've all had that opportunity. Not everybody has that. So I think that back to Ann's earlier point on, you know, there is a responsibility um, on making sure that 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 base level sort of table stakes on success exist, good education, right? Safety, public safety, right? If you can, if you can get out and go to a city park, okay, as a kid, or walk to school as a kid, and not be afraid. I mean, we take that for granted here in the United States and most par- most parts of the country. But for those people that don't take that for granted, they they wake up in the morning and their mentality isn't about oh how how optimistic changes you know how can I be optimistic about the changing world, so that that to me is where is where the basic building blocks that we can't lose sight of that that are the building blocks those are the building blocks for this sort of opportunity society, and then if you have that, I really am optimistic about people, and I think people will survive and and thrive. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, everything we know about 
humanity and kids and how people learn is this open to the new only happens when you're not concerned about surviving from point A to point B, right? And I think that is the, that's always the dilemma about how do you support people to to have that ability to get excited about the new. But, but you know, it does to come back to the very first thing you said, Andrew, about uh, fast versus slow. It does also give some grounds for optimism when you think about, for example, the role of government, right? It may be, as Ken says, that we're going to have to live with attention, that government is the kind of institution that moves slowly, right? But it may also be that the most important functions of government are actually to do certain very basic things well, which doesn't require very high-speed change. Public safety is hard, but they've been, we've been doing it a long time with success in a lot of places. Reading, writing, and math, right? Anne and her team working hard at figuring out how we can do that better, but nonetheless... We've been doing that a long time too. We don't have to radically, radically, uh, you know, innovate to figure out how to teach a child to uh, to read. Uh, so maybe if we uh, maybe if we kind of focus on well, the institutions that move slowly do a few things and do them really well, that uh, maybe perhaps we actually have some grounds for optimism about how well they'll do the job. Yes. As we're kind of starting to near the end of our time here, we we've spent all season of the first season of the Strategers asking our guests what is something that we're not talking about that we should be talking about. We got a lot of really interesting answers. Um, and what do you think um, we're not talking enough about that we should be as a nation? Oh, boy, Andrew. Um, Don't we start with Colin? No, well, here, this is what just popped to my mind. So this is my unedited answer. As it should be. Uh, adulting, like, which is an, an element of what we've been talking about. But how do you actually properly par- prepare people to have prosperous, self-determined lives? And like, do you know how to change your tire and balance your budget? Do you know how to, you know, like, like really practical adulting sort of skills? And I'm partly inspired on that by um, hearing a millennial the other day describe to other millennials about how to do well at work. And her advice, which I thought was particularly spot on, was know, understand how you can add value and then explain that to someone else. But if you don't start with your own value proposition you're going to be stuck. And I just thought, oh, what a perfect capture of a piece of great workplace advice for a young person. So I wish we all talked a little bit more about the practicality of adulting. Is that a job of the education system? Not solely, right? Like, I think that's sort of, I'm not sure who is responsible, but I think there's a little more uh, collective responsibility probably for all of us. And this is not to say that people like over the age of 30 have like nailed adulting, right? Like, let's be clear. (laughs) I know I haven't for a fact. (laughs) Good luck with that, Andrew. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking maybe my 50s is where I'm really going to hit my stride on that front. Colin, what do you think? I would say applying the lessons of brain science. And let me give a very practical example. We've learned a whole lot about human brains work, right? Uh, one thing we've learned is that it's incredibly beneficial to human beings to slow down, go outside, maybe take a walk through some green space. Um, well, to what degree are we actually acting on that lesson? I mean, there's abundant evidence that people essentially become creative, smarter, calmer, their heart rate goes down. All of these things, if you actually, uh, uh, in a sense, let them unplug a little bit from this high-speed world that we've created, right? Well, I think we have a lot of work to do to actually create more opportunities for well, the kids, the adults, the, the those of us who are adults, but not quite, right, uh, to actually uh, work that into our lives a little bit more. I think we, we could use to, to talk about that a lot more. 
Interesting. And uh, we have a great park out back. I hope to, hopefully we'll see you walking around it every day, right? I do. And I, I absolutely. And when I can't, don't have time for that, I go out on our balcony and look out and try to take in the green and de- decompress a little bit. It's good for all of us. Ken, what do you think is that uh, we're not talking enough about? Um, I don't think we're talking enough about the $22 trillion of debt the United States has and, <laughs> and, and probably three to four times that of contingent liabilities. So the, um, Just as I was starting to feel you know, decompressed. I know, I know. <laughs> and but, I'm but tense. What's ironic is that used to be at the top of everybody's list, the national debt clock and everything else. And now, now it seems to become fashionable to say it's really not anything to worry about. Um, but just like a household, uh, insolvency creeps up on you and you're fine until the moment that you're not fine. Um, and somehow we're not talking about that. But that's not what I was going to answer. Oh, um, two answers. This two is answers. a first. This is a daily double here. I think that the the there's a, the ultimate irony in that people are accepting of the fact. When I hear this, it makes me cringe. And it has nothing to do with Republicans or Democrats because it's happening in both. Um, this acceptance of what we're calling a post-truth society that where facts don't matter. And we are in an age where facts are more accessible than ever. And people are accessing them the least. So what do you do? What do we do about it? How do you how do you change? Because part of it comes from the echo chambers. You look for people that are that agree with you and you hear what they say. And you're like, okay, well, this number of people agree with me. How do we how do we get past that? I, I don't have a good answer. I think that people are becoming very experiential. And I think that if it happens to them, then they'll start to get it. So I think that when you're talking about some of these major forces um, that we can, we might see it coming um, until there's a riot in the street, people are going to say, oh, well, I guess the conditions were bad, weren't they? But they had to wait for the riot to really wake up to it. And um, all the empirical data and all the research reports and all the, all the people who have been talking about it at think tanks all over the country and all over the world, um, their, uh, their, their actions and, and recommendations will then get pulled out and say, look at the people who were talking about it. What are we supposed to do about it? Um, but it is a, it's a real problem. And part of it, I think, is there's a real cynicism. Um, it's generational. Um, it's, it's across countries. It's political. Um, and that cynicism has had people say when they see something they don't like, they have one word, whatever. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I was just singing your example about the uh, the debt clock and post truth, right? Like the debt clock and the, the the debt cliff facing us is a fact, but we're post truth. So I'm gonna just whatever that, Ken. Whatever, whatever. You're, you're so boring I talking know. about ne- money. Debt. I'm gonna try and I'm gonna try and end it optimistically though, because we I think this Thank is great. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, so that's that's why I'm here. I, I like to think, but we, that's really highlights the importance of programs like the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program, where where they are really working hard to make sure that people from opposite sides of the aisle are both learning how to listen to each other and learn how to solve problems together. Uh, Ken, I know you've that's, seen, and that's a, that is a great that is a that's a great example. I am also very encouraged. There are millions of non-viral stories out there of really extraordinary things being done by ordinary people. We, we, we are able to see a subset of them at the Bush Center, um, but we obviously can't see them all and applaud them all and highlight them all. But there's so many people in every community around the country who are, who are helping and doing um, that uh, the generalizations, the, that's what will, will fight the generalizations. Um, and, and, and so there, there, there is a lot of hope out there because there's a lot of good work being done.
completely. Well, guys, thank you so much for doing this. This was this was fun. I hope we get to do it again and and keep debating topics. I think we we didn't we hardly even got to AI. So let's do it again. We'll talk. We'll really dive deep into AI on the next one or esports or esports, <laughs> which my dad promised me I was never going to be, be able to make money playing video games. And now now look, Dad, see see, I should have been practicing the whole time. There you go, Andrew. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks <laughs> thank for having you, us. Andrew. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help us spread the word about The Strategist, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the major listening apps. If you're tuning in on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll find episode notes with helpful information and details you may have missed. The Strategist was produced by Ioana Pappas at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for listening.